What compels someone to spend seven years walking around the world? How do we keep our resilience in the face of adversity? What do we do with life after we achieve an epic goal? This week, Globetrotter Tom Tursich on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Hello, Dre. How are you? Hola. Today? Hola. ¿Cómo estás? Uh, bien. I always say bien, but I don't think that's right. I don't no, know. No, that is correct. Oh, it is? Sí, you can oh. say bien or muy bien, very well. Muy bien. Oh, Estoy muy bien. Muy bien. <laughs> <laughs> that's about my extent of Spanish knowledge. Well, you should it's, learn. I should. You know, it's one of those things that, I don't know, we, we don't need to go into it. But yeah, it's one of those great disappointments of my life that I don't speak Spanish. You know, I've tried to learn. Have, you still have time. That is true. And it's good, you know, as an aging brain, it's actually good to try to learn new languages. It helps keep your brain all firing. And I mean, good. didn't didn't our guest learn Spanish before he started traveling into South America and Central America? Um, I think he probably did. I think he did. I think he stopped and learned Spanish before he traveled south, which I think is pretty cool. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about Tom? Tom Tursich is a writer, motivational speaker, and adventurer. After the early death of a close friend, he decided to walk around the entire globe. So he spent several years planning this journey and seven years actually doing it. Along the way, he faced sickness, theft, and other numerous challenges, but he also met incredible people and discovered how people all over the world are coming up with local solutions to problems ranging from climate change to social justice. Yeah, I actually first heard about Tom from my son. Um, it was in his fifth grade class, and his mm. fifth grade class was following this project he had, the World Walk. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, this is really intriguing. And when Tom's journey was finished and I heard about him, I thought, okay, now this would be a very interesting person to talk to about how they know themselves. And like, yeah. what does it mean to spend seven years ostensibly by yourself? He had a little dog, Savannah, who became like a celebrity for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cute. So cute. But that, you know, he was walking by himself for seven years around mm -hmm. the world and mm -hmm. how one, I was very curious about like why one would want to do something like this how one keeps it up because you can imagine like the thrill probably diminishes <laughs> after a couple of months mine would be like four days of yeah. walking 20 miles a day i'd be like and i'm done Going yeah home. yeah exactly okay did, uh, okay i this did it sounded like a good idea <laughs> <laughs> but you know what this also reminds me of is this thing that um you know joseph campbell i don't know if you've ever read him he has this idea of the hero's journey the monomyth mm -hmm. that in every culture around the world there is an epic tale about a journey and, mm -hmm. you know, it's a way that we also for our own lives undergo our own personal transformation and how do we find transcendence is by doing our own kind of hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And so Tom is somebody who actually did a hero's journey, like a really yeah. epic thing. And so I was just fascinated to hear how this experience changed him, what he learned from it. And he had a lot of interesting things to say and interesting things to share. So. Um, really looking forward to airing this conversation with Tom Tursich. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to meet you. I'm a big admirer of you and your journey, and I'm really excited to hear more about it. So let's start with our first question, which I think most people would want to know is what on earth compelled you to want to walk around the world? I had a friend who died when I was 17 and it was very impactful. And when I 
really accepted that my time is limited and thought about what I wanted to do with that limited amount of time. I knew I wanted to travel, I wanted adventure, and I wanted to understand the world. And so I looked for different ways to achieve all those things. Initially, it was by, I was going to Euro rail with my cousin for a summer. Uh-huh. And then kind of going down a rabbit hole on the internet led me to discover Steve Newman and Carl Bushby, these two guys who had walked around the world. And once I saw that was possible, I knew pretty much right away that this fulfilled everything I wanted out of life. And so the idea stuck in my head. And then it was eight years of saving and planning and going to school until I was able to begin. But really, it was born of the death of my close friend, Amory, and just knowing how limited time we have here. It's interesting, like in retrospect now, I mean, I have like things that seemed like a great idea when I was 18. And <laughs> if you were, I mean, it's hard if, if you were going to go back and talk to your, you know, 17, 18 year old self and say, hey, this inspiration, well, this is what you should know. <laughs> How would that go? I mean, I'm, I'm very glad I didn't leave at 18. My mom uh-huh. made sure that I went to college, even though I really had no interest in going to college. Yeah. And if I left at 18, I, who knows if I would have made it back, you know, I would have uh-huh. gotten into some trouble. Even at 26, when I left, I was didn't know what I was doing, uh, but it had given me a little more time to understand myself and understand the world. But yeah, I'm, I'm grateful I didn't start at 18. That would have been a disaster. Well, I'm curious though. So you have a big gap. You have this tragedy that sort of dislodges you, kind of generates this existential yearning, uh, for lack of a better word. This epiphany comes to you. And I, I'm big on these, you know, epiphanies. I think they can be really, I, that's epiphanies have guided my life in good ways and bad ways. But, so epiphanies are strong, but you have a long period of time and a lot of growth and a lot of change that's happening between, you know, 17, 18, and then like your mid twenties. What was it that was sustaining this vision for you during that period? Well, it was always in the background of my mind. You know, I, I wanted to leave at 18 and then went to school and, met this girl there that I was very much in love with and, you know, would have married probably in another life. But it was always in the background of of my mind that, you know, I wanted to do this thing, but it wasn't on kind of the, the front burner. But I think what sustained it and what really brought it to a head was that it was just aligned with my values and what I wanted out of life, like at the core of me. Uh, it wasn't a one-off flipping idea that I had as a 17 year old or 18 year old, you know, I had a lot of ideas, but this is the one that I, that I aligned with most deeply. And I knew that, you know, at, at 17, when I, when I had the idea, I knew it was something uh, that I really wanted. And so I think what made it sustainable and what made me end up, you know, beginning years later was that I couldn't really imagine doing anything else with my life. Uh-huh. And when I thought about this certain amount of time ahead of me and moving in with my girlfriend and then starting a career and getting furniture and then having kids and all this, you know, it would have been a nice path with her, but it also, I just couldn't imagine spending my time working some job just for money, just to sustain a life with uh, this, you know, one other person, even though I loved her. And so, yeah, it really came down to it just 
it just fit with my values and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And that came up later too, when after South America, I fell very ill with a bacteria infection. I picked it up probably from some water in Argentina or Uruguay, and it was very slow going. But eventually I lost 45 pounds and was just an agony all the time. I ended up having to take about six months off from the walk just because I was dying yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. lucky I survived. But when I picked back up, I had a lot of this mental, emotional, and physical trauma. And when I was walking through Denmark and Germany and Belgium and France, it was a battle the entire time. I, I didn't have that normal positivity and excitement about the walk that I usually did. It was a lot of negativity because I had just been in pain for so long. But what sustained me again through that, rather than going home, which I, I really wanted, I really wanted to be with my family and my cousins and my friends at home. But then when I thought about going home, it just seemed insane to me because what was I going to do? I, I was yeah. I was going to live a life that I didn't want to live that again, just wasn't aligned with who I was and my values. And so it goes back to the values. It goes back to this reflection that I had at 17 after Anne-Marie died and really kind of understanding myself. And I think that is the key to maintaining resilience or perseverance or a sense of purpose. Sure. I, I want to get into that a little bit more, but before we do that, I'm I'm also curious. Tell me a little bit more about you, and you know. So you, you you've described these kinds of values, and as I'm, I'm wondering, like you know, I think about myself when I was a teenager, and I like read On the Road, you know, with Jack Kerouac, and then I had this very. Yeah. I think I had a period where I had this romantic vision in my head. It's like, oh, I want to be like the dude on the road, you know, and going off on this kind of journey. And so, can you share with us a little bit more about? What, when you say it sort of aligns with your values, what are those values that, and how do they manifest themselves for you? Well, I've never been, I would say much of a, an academic in a, in a certain way. You know, I, I've always, maybe not always, but school was just not, I, I didn't care about school. I, I was able to skate by, get mm-hmm. good enough grades. Didn't really care that much. Probably wasn't until senior year of college that I really gained an appreciation for pouring over textbooks and learning. Uh, it was a real revelation for me. I was like, oh, this is actually, you know, on things I'm interested about, this is really enjoyable. Uh, yeah. But up until then, I, you know, just skated by and and did what I needed to do to, to maintain the status quo. And so I, I was always physically active. My dad had lived under TARP for four years in Hawaii when he was 20. And he talked about that all the time. So I think a certain part of that stayed with me and that adventurism stayed with me. And then my mom was an artist, is an artist. And she was very much always pressed, understanding things, uh, why things are the way they are, and just paying attention. She would always say that. She was just pay attention. And so I think like in hindsight, when I came across the world walk, you know, initially it was that, you know, breaking away kind of on the road, Jack Kerouac just needing to escape and discover yourself as a young person. But I think the reason the world walk is what stayed with me was because I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be a life. You know, that was the main thing. I wanted it to be a life. I wanted it to be a long time. I didn't want it to just be a walk across 
the country. I didn't want it to just be a road trip. And that was because, you know, Amory died. And so I knew this decision, I wanted to affect the rest of my time here kind of thing. And then uh, my other values, you know, the traveling, the adventure, that definitely came from my dad. You know, I wanted that. He talked about that forever. So that came from my dad for sure. And then understanding the world really came from uh, my mom. I, I didn't, that idea, I don't think was as clear or it takes a different form today than it did back then. Uh, back then, it I really believed in the way to understand the world was, you know, to live in it and to be in places. And I still believe in that uh, a lot. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why I walked is because you can't skip over places. Whereas if you're on bike or in car, or if you're just a tourist, you're skipping over all the in between. So that really drew me. It's like, oh, I'm going to see the real Mexico. I'm going to see the real Guatemala. I'm going to see yeah. these real places. And that will bring me to understanding. And then as I went further on, and now I see, you know, understanding is, is that, but it's also kind of understanding like, geopolitics and geography and history and all these really large forces that influence the common man. But, you know, I I was only able to come to that understanding through actually just walking through these places. Um, So I hope, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the layered answer of of my values. So you had this vision or this epiphany, okay, I want to walk around the world. And then now I, I want to get into like, you got to do some logistics around this. So one question I had, did you set up like rules for yourself? I'm going to walk, but I'm going to walk in this particular way or do like, how does, how does one go about, you know, g- translating a general idea into sort of a specific set of actions? I'm very curious how you, how you did that. Yeah, the only rule was just to walk all the steps until I flew or took a boat to the next continent. That was really the only rule. I, uh, Carl Bushby, who's an ex-British paratrooper, one of my inspirations, he had a, a couple of rules where he didn't want to take any boats, any airplanes, and he wasn't—he was never going to return home until he finished this walk. And from, I don't have that like military or uh-huh. <laughs> uh, rule-based order. I, I think it can be self-defeating at a lot of points. So I wanted to walk around the world. And that was it. And then it was a matter of what are the, what's the easiest way to do that in the sense of how can I do that with as little visa trouble as possible? That was one of the rules. And then I mm-hmm. wanted to not rules, but that was, you know, a guiding outlook, guiding principle. And then I, at the time I wanted to hit every continent and I still did. I wasn't able to do Australia because of COVID, but you know, that, that was the map. And then otherwise it was going to walk and, you know, if a place calls to me for a while, then I'll hang out there. If not, then I'll just keep moving. But I also had these sort of external motivators in a certain way, in the sense of I barely had any money. I had I was able to get a sponsor before I began that gave me a little bit less than minimum wage. And so I knew I could I couldn't drag this walk on forever. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to get a boat to Antarctica at the end of the South American summer. So the first two years, I walked like a maniac, uh, not because of any internal rule of, you know, you have to walk a certain amount and you can't stop here or there, but because I was trying to get to this boat that would take me to Antarctica. And then also because I had this burning desire to prove to myself and my followers that I could do this thing. So what would you average in, in terms of walking like miles per day? The first two years, I was probably averaging maybe 22, 23 miles a day. I uh-huh. generally tried to walk 24 miles a day at least. Yeah. And I almost never stopped. I had the first year, 
I took three weeks off when I adopted my dog Savannah in Austin. And then I took two weeks off in Guatemala in Lake Atalan to study Spanish. But then other than that, I was walking every other day, every day. Yeah. So yeah, I was a maniac. And so when you're you're I assume you're you're staying off the interstates, probably staying on on smaller roads. Can you just take us through what a typical day for you might look like when you're on your walk? Yeah, wake up somewhere, who knows where, you know, maybe uh-huh. it's on the edge of someone's property, maybe it's in a field, maybe it's on the beach, maybe it's an abandoned house in the deserts of Peru, maybe it's up in the mountains, and then have a little breakfast, maybe peanut butter, jelly, granola bar, peanut butter, maybe some nuts if I don't have much, maybe coffee. Uh, sometimes I brought my stove with me, sometimes I didn't. Uh, the second year, I didn't have my stove with me because I was in the desert, but then it was walk. And if I'm in a densely populated area, I would try and camp maybe an hour outside of somewhere I knew I could get breakfast. Yeah. And then it would motivate me to go get breakfast, have a nice coffee somewhere, walk another three hours, hang out, take a break, maybe find a place for lunch, maybe just have lunch, you know, in the middle of nowhere, walk another three, four hours, start looking for a place to camp, camp, have some peace and quiet, hopefully do it all over again. One of the things I, I was I was kind of reading on on your journey, and you you get your dog Savannah at some point on because, and I think you had described that sense of kind of fear and vulnerability from camping at night. And I was thinking about this. I, I used to sometimes go camp by myself in the wilderness, and I would like be in my tent, and I would you know my mind would emit like all the noises. I was just convinced that there was something either like a, you know, a predator or natural predator, or there was like some psychopath who'd been stalking me, you know, up into the wilderness and he was just waiting for this moment to kill me. And then, you know, at some point I had a change in perspective, which was like, oh, rather than seeing all the noises of the wilderness as potential threats, I could see them as my companions. And I suddenly was now kind of held by this, like, oh, you know, these are all things that coexist in this life force with me. And, and I, I got a lot more peace and I, and I'm very curious because one of the things that's probably not self-evident about your journey is how vulnerable you are. You know, you're in these countries where no one knows you, you're by yourself and I, and the loneliness there too. And I want to get into that in a minute, but I just, I want to, you know, to hear a little bit more about your experience with confronting that nighttime vulnerability, loneliness, precariousness, and how you went through and what did you do to sort of make peace with that? The first four months walking in the U.S. was very much exactly what you experienced, where you just have this part of your brain that's on high alert and you're kind of hearing things that aren't there or you're imagining, you know, a breaking twig is something that it isn't. And then as you sleep through the night, you wake up when you're in stage one or stage two sleep just thinking you hear something four times a night, probably. Mm -hmm. And so I just never slept super well on the road unless I gave myself melatonin or like an Advil PM or something like that. I just never sleep totally well. And so I kept thinking, man, it'd be nice to have a dog. And eventually I, I got Savannah for that purpose, very much to just get a better night's sleep. And then also because I was going into Central and South America and I thought she'd be a good deterrent for, you know, any bad actors. And in Mexico, I was just inundated with newness and fear 
And mm-hmm. I, if I went back to Mexico now, and even if I walked through Mexico now, it'd be an entirely different experience. But it was the first country that I had walked through uh, where I was abroad and didn't know the culture and uh, felt very vulnerable and just on such high alert all the time. And when I was in there, I would camp deep into the bush and like well before uh, sunset, I would start looking for a place that I could hide away. And so that was you know, one of the main ways at the beginning that I saw this, I would just make sure I was really, really well hidden at night, even if it was such a pain. And I had to sweep out a bunch of thorns from like the bottom of a thorn bush just uh-huh. to make sure I was totally hidden. But as time went on, you just camped so much. And I kind of realized that I had never, no one had ever stumbled across me <laughs> at night. <laughs> and And then if I was woken by someone towards like the earlier morning, the times I did encounter someone, it was a farmer or or a shepherd, uh, maybe before I went to bed or right as I was going to bed or right as I was waking up or right before I'd wake up. And so, you know, this, you do that enough times, you you know, I can actually probably get away with, you know, whatever. How did those those encounters go? I mean, I imagine they were pretty shocked to see you. Like, yeah, always, almost always, almost universally very nice. Yeah, never, never a problem. Um, I remember in El Salvador, I camped on the edge of this guy's property and he came across me uh, around probably four o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and uh, or maybe five o'clock in the morning and he yelled at me uh-huh. and then he went off and heard it some cattle or something he came back and apologized and it's like you can you know you stay here it's it's no problem i just woke up i was tired and what i didn't have coffee yet yeah and that was probably like the most uh aggressive version of it uh but otherwise people were really uh very uh accepting of me camping wherever you know and i tried not to camp on private property uh but it just happens sometimes sometimes you just didn't have an option and you, you know try you don't do any damage close the fence and you know leave without a trace kind of thing but do you leave like yeah, a little so note did you ever leave like a little hidden thank you <laughs> yeah actually sometimes sometimes i would yeah, yeah yeah sometimes i would like if you're camped out in the woods or in some strange place your people are probably more afraid of you then you know you are them they yeah, don't want to yeah. be walking in the woods and see this tent and a dog barking or anything like that but then the other part is you just get used to it and you know by the end i slept great on the road i could i could sleep anywhere because it just the the sounds are the sounds and the wind is the wind you just go through these false alarms so many times that set you off and then you realize oh they're all false alarms but it did help to have Sedana too because she would perk up and hear things and I would let her out of the tent. She would charge out and she'd come back and all right, and go back to bed. And and that was it. And strangely in the US, the US is probably where I slept the worst, just because people are insane about their private property and there's a lot of gun possession. Yeah. Yeah, probably worse than anywhere else. Uh I, I was the US as far as camping and sleeping. And definitely I slept at the most on high alert. But you just get used to it. <laughs> And you hit like a little cart, right? That this is, you weren't backpacking for the most part. You were like pushing your stuff along. Yeah. The cart was a very conscious choice. I had backpacked for maybe 10 days before my life. I did a part of the Appalachian Trail with my college tennis partner and I I hated it. Mm -hmm. having, (laughs) Having a 70 pound tumor on my back. Yeah. So I knew I didn't want that for five years, you know, ended up the walk ended up being seven years, but I thought it was going to be five years. So I got the cart 
because initially because of this hatred toward backpacking and yeah. this dislike with backpacking, but also because I wanted some luxuries with me and with a backpack, I knew I was going to try and be cutting weight and I wanted to have, you know, a little bit nicer of a sleeping pad, maybe a pillar, a little bit heavier duty of a tent kind of thing. I didn't want to be ultra lighting it. And then I knew as well down in the deserts of Peru and Chile that I just wouldn't be able to carry enough water with me to get some, get through some four day stretches. And yeah. So the cart was uh, the answer to that as well. Um, my son who followed you when he is in his fifth grade class and he specifically was very interested in your shoes. Um, mm. <laughs> how, how did shoes go? Cause I imagine you're wearing shoes out. Yeah, I probably went through 40, 45 pairs, something uh -huh. like that. Initially, it was a lot of trial and error. I tried all sorts of different shoes, and I lost a lot of toenails and had a lot of blisters because of it. But eventually, I settled on Brooks Cascadias. They're just phenomenal, and they fit my feet perfectly. And kind of once I found that and the size that fit me, and I wore smart wool socks because the wool is just kind of the only way to go. And it wicks moisture better, and uh, when you get wet it still keeps your foot warm but once yeah once i figured those things out probably around the middle of central america then my feet were in good shape pretty much the rest of the way i want to hear also like you have i'm sure these moments where you're walking alongside a very maybe a crowded highway you know i i know like when i've traveled and uh, around the world a lot of the roads are highly utilized there's not much of a shoulder on them for example they're oftentimes one there are one lane road with two-way traffic so i i'm imagining now as I, as I think more about this like god you probably were walking on these kinds of roads maybe it was pouring rain and you were tell us a little bit more about like those kinds of obstacles and you know and dealing with those kinds of obstacles yeah there was some terrible roads really bad roads um and i remember in mexico i walked this road for a couple days and it was on the Gulf of Mexico and it was just a narrow two-lane road kind of windy and, you, and the windy narrow roads are really terrifying because you get cars flying around the corner and it didn't have a shoulder I got better as time went on on knowing what to prioritize in a road and, and what not to I mean you could only get away with having no shoulder for me if it was a really underpopulated if there was just not if the road was not being used otherwise yeah. i would take probably a bigger road with a shoulder because i would just be able to relax but again and then it depends on the country because it depends on what, what are the road systems like how many cars do people have what's the population density depends on a lot of things so every country is kind of this trial and error of finding what's the best way to navigate it and i got very good at it by the end of figuring out very quickly these roads will work. These roads won't work. This will be peaceful. This won't be peaceful kind of thing. In the beginning, I walked a lot of very scary roads. And honestly, I would just get so frustrated and angry. You know, I was terrified. And it was, it was really stressful. When I would get off of that road or when I would take a break, I would just be exhausted because I was on such high alert yeah. the entire time. Savannah, so close and was ready to, you know, swerve off the road or or whatever was needed. Uh, so there was times in the beginning where it was not fun and uh, kind of coped by cursing at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> One other question I had is just border crossings. How did those go? Because I can imagine, you know, particularly in our era where there's so much tension around border areas, 
How did you find your border crossings and, you know, telling some immigration official, oh, hey, I'm going to walk through your country? <laughs> For the most part, pretty easy. Yeah, I do my uh -huh. research beforehand. And it was uh, a lot of making sure that I could get in with out a visa or mm -hmm. I would get a visa upon entry essentially. There were a couple countries where I had to get a visa. Algeria had to get a visa and that was a bit of a pain. I would say the more challenging thing about borders is that they're just a hive of activity, especially when there is a wealth disparity. It's like Mexico to the US, the Mexican side is really built up and busy. Yeah. And then say uh the Spanish have uh, a little outpost on Morocco and that border from Morocco into the Spanish port is again really built up and busy and hectic so i it would always stress me out when i would reach these borders just because i knew it was you just got to get through this and then once once you get past the border things relax and you're back in the countryside or whatever uh, in general on my walk i would tend to try and avoid cities maybe go around cities just a little more dangerous, a little more stressful to walk through, especially with a dog in a baby carriage. And the yeah. borders are just kind of chaotic cities, essentially. But yeah, the paperwork, you know, was fine for me generally. Savannah always had to do paperwork beforehand. I had uh, a 10 day window for every border to get her health certificate, had a rabies vax. For some countries, say entering into Chile, she had to get an ivermectin shot. So for some, for some countries, they had smaller requirements, more particular requirements. But for the most part with Savannah, probably 50% of the countries, because we were crossing on foot, they didn't even acknowledge her. There's strays yeah. crossing the border anyway. They don't care that another yeah. stray, another dog is going across. So I found that very, very funny, especially going through Central and South America. They just like didn't even look at her. And yeah. I think Turkey was the same way going from going from Greece into Turkey. I don't think they acknowledged her at all. Georgia, I don't think they acknowledge her. So it just kind of becomes where it's like just another dog crossing the border, whatever. One of the things that when I think about your trip that's fascinating to me is just the loneliness of it. And the amount of time that you're by yourself, not only by yourself, but you're venturing further and further away from what is familiar. That's really intriguing. And so can you describe that a little bit like more? Like I'm curious, like your how do you cope? How do you cope with your own feelings of loneliness? How did they manifest themselves for you? What did you do to sort of coexist with them or learn to coexist with them? The loneliness, I would say, worsened or grew stronger as the walk went on, especially after I crossed maybe North Africa and then was walking Italy and the Mediterranean again over towards Turkey, probably because I thought at that point I'm, I'm, I'm about the halfway point and I started thinking about the end. Uh -huh. In the beginning, I was just so motivated and had so much excitement to be on the road. And I basically was walking all the time that loneliness was pretty uncommon, honestly. The only time I would get lonely was when I would stop in a city for more than a day or two. The first day or two, it's just recovery. I'm, my body's aching. I'm tired from the heat recovery, but every once in a while I would get stuck in a place. My axle broke in Colombia and I stayed in this uh, small city, La Plata Huila. It's a beautiful city, but I was stuck there for about a month waiting for this axle replacement for my cart. It was very lonely because you see everyone living their life and you just don't have this purpose to fill your days. So the walking is a buffer 
against loneliness because I had a purpose every single morning, wake up, walk, find a place to camp. And then on top of that, just through doing that, I would discover the world. I would meet people. I was getting all this stimulation. I was getting sunlight. I was getting physical activity. And then when I found a place to sleep at night, it was amazing. I just, if it was a good place to camp, it's like, this is what it's like having a kingdom to yourself sometimes. So that when I'm walking, it's really, really fulfilling. But as time went on, the walking became less poignant, less significant in a way. And it became this thing I have to get through Yeah, in a certain way. A lot of it was just because I had already spent so much time with myself. I had already seen a lot of the world where when I would get into new places, it just wasn't as exciting as it was in the beginning. And it didn't change me as much as it did in the beginning. And these little tea shops that I would come across weren't totally novel to me anymore. They, I had seen a thousand of them before. The food I had was, oh, maybe this is similar to something else I had. And it wasn't a totally new discovery. So as time went on, it became more difficult. Again, it was just kind of knowing myself and knowing my values that made me able to get through that and persevere through uh, the challenging times. But it was tough. I mean, you just spend a lot of time on your own. And by the end, the loneliness was very profound. You know, miss my family, miss my friends, missed having someone close that knows you that you can build a home with. At a certain point, it's just you just got to keep walking and that's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I would, I was trying to imagine if I were in your shoes and I, I could imagine myself probably engaging in my head with a lot of romantic fantasies like, Oh, you know, I'll be on this walk and I will meet my soulmate, you know, in some village or something like that. And then, you know, month after month, this is not happening. <laughs> and I'm wondering like, if you had any of these kind of either romantic, you know, illusions and, and if they didn't come to pass, like, like just mat- maturing through, through your romantic illusions about what you were doing, maybe more generally. Yeah. I, I had this relationship briefly in San Sebastian, Spain with, with a girl there. And Part of me really wanted to stay. And part of me at that point was just desperate for any relationship because I just got over this illness and I was tired of being out there and I wanted familiarity. And I really put way too much on her mm-hmm. and expected way too much. And then when I left, it was such a reminder of this is the deal I made. You just can't have these things right now. For the next couple of months through Spain and Morocco and Algeria, I was nesting like crazy. I would just fantasize about my future home all the time, constantly. Eventually that died out and I would still do it, but you know, not as often it's kind of traveling is imagining yourself in places, but it wasn't as extreme as those couple months. Yeah. There's a lot of fantasy, but it more was about after the walk. That's what I would fantasize about in my life after the walk. And so it wasn't so much meeting someone on the road after Spain. I stopped expecting that. Because it just, I knew it just wasn't going to work. It just, I'm not going to stop the walk. And so I, this is just a thing I can't have right now. So then I would fantasize about who I'm going to meet after walk and what our life is going to be like after that. This is something that's very akin to our current era, which is you have this experience of being on this walk and it's very isolated for the most part. Yet over time, you're also developing this online following and people, your experience, people are tracking it. Like my son's class, they were tracking you and there's this a weird bifurcation between on the one hand being the focus of all this attention yet also being isolated in unto yourself. And I'm curious 
how that worked for you and and what that was like. I really didn't feel it, strangely. I think it really boggled my mind for the longest time that people follow someone online. I just I, and have a and have an emotional connected. For myself, I never had that. I, I've never been much of an idolizer or a celebrity follower. I didn't have Instagram before the walk. I started Instagram just because of the walk and because I had this fundraiser and I felt indebted to the people who sponsored me essentially. Mm-hmm. I felt like with Instagram, I would be able to just, you know, give back a little bit and and take them on my journey. But when I had, I built up this following, I, I never understood it. And people would be so emotionally connected with me. It was really difficult for me to grasp because I had never experienced that in a certain way. But now that I'm in one place, I do find myself connected to some people and and their life. And I could really see how walking and, and passing through these places and having me having these trials and sharing these trials and, and having Savannah by my side would be this great adventure to, for people to follow along with. At the time, I didn't understand it at all. For me, when I was walking, it was the Instagram side of it is where I posted most of it. What was motivating about that was that I just wanted to post better things. That was basically it. I just wanted to be constantly improving kind of because it was really the only habit, the only constructive thing I could do on the road besides walking. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time I didn't have energy to sit down and write each night. And if I did, I was in my tent. Sometimes it was raining. Sometimes I'm just exhausted. So I would write these longer form posts, you know, occasionally, uh, maybe every couple of weeks. Uh, But day to day, I'm going about my day. I have nothing to do but listen to podcasts and music and consume and this one place where I could create something was by taking photographs and sharing the world, by writing a little bit about my day kind of thing. And so that was kind of where it was constructive and motivating for me was as this outlet for growth and, and creativity. And the photography came very naturally. Before the walk, I had barely taken photos ever. I, I, I maybe taken a couple dozen photos in my life. I honestly had no interest in taking photos because I thought they took me out of the moment. Sure. But the photography came because I wanted to share the world. And then as I travel more, I found I enjoyed photography and that there were interesting things to share. And so it kind of grew naturally out of that. Yeah, the connection is a uh, it's something I honestly didn't really feel on the road in a strange way. Uh-huh. Because I was out on my own, you know, I, I wasn't meeting these people that were following me and I had never experienced in a certain way what they were experiencing. I think one of the things that was probably for people who are not on your journey, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead. This is a question I was going to save at the end, but I think this is a good moment to bring it in. Um, are, you, are you familiar with, you know, Joseph Campbell's idea of the monomyth, the hero's journey? This is the idea that all culture, all human cultures have this same kind of myth it's the idea that a hero hears the call to action, decides to go out of their ordinary life, go on some sort of adventure or epic adventure along the way, typically meets a wise mentor, gains some allies, overcomes all kinds of struggles, eventually has some kind of real existential experience where they kind of really have to let go of their own attachment to life. And that really transforms them. And then eventually they come back to who they were before, but they're different. And if you look at 
you know, everything from like Harry Potter to Star Wars to the Matrix, all these narratives that we have, they're basically following the same kind of hero's journey monomyth here. And I think in a lot of ways, what you were doing here was a real life hero's journey. Like you were, you heard, you had this call to adventure when you were young, kind of, you went on the road. I don't know if you met any wise mentors who gave you magic talisman that usually happens in the hero's journey. But, um, so I'm, you know, I think that's what's, was compelling. You, you, you gained an ally with Savannah, you know, that was your companion. So I'm curious to hear about that, that sense of what for you on this journey might have been transcendent. Like, what did you, what did you, where were your moments of learning transcendence or how, how did, how did those, you know, happen for you? The journey started very selfishly, I would say, just it was me wanting an adventure. You know, I've grown up in a very nice suburb of South Jersey, a wealthy state in the wealthiest country in the world, tall, white, male, you know, very little trouble in the world uh, for myself. I think initially when, when I started walking, it was, it was very insular. This is through just the act of walking itself is very meditative the first thing I resolved was this relationship that I ended or that ended so I could do the walk. I had ended that relationship two years before, but it wasn't until I started walking that I realized it wasn't resolved and that walking is what was needed to resolve it. Yeah. And then over the next year, year and a half, probably down until uh, North Chile, walking was just this constant meditation, especially in the desert. And it was very, very internal, kind of weeding your mind and going through your past influences, your life, your mistakes, your idiosyncrasies. And with enough time by yourself, I had just turned over every aspect of my life so many times that I had nothing left to turn over. Uh -huh. And so in a certain way, I reached this weird transcendence where I had this thought in the desert of South Peru that I had thought all the thoughts. I just had nothing left to think. <laughs> and then I was laying in the desert in uh, Chile, the Atacama Desert, driest desert in the world, and the stars are just absolutely insane. And I would see them every night because there's no rain, there's no clouds, it was warm. So I'd lay out on my tarp and I'd just sleep in the desert every night for months. One night I felt them just like, you always feel them just kind of sitting on you. But one night in particular, you just feel them just weighing on you. And I felt like I was at the bottom of myself, that I had to rebuild myself from, from nothing. And I thought I was thinking about what is like what matters when nothing matters kind of thing. Everything will be erased in a second. And the answer I came to was just happiness. And that's like the only measure worthwhile is be happy and to create happiness. You the the economy is important because it creates happiness. It creates greater productivity so people can be happier in theory. That's why you have money. That's why you have your family. That's why anything is done. The ultimate goal of this thing is to either fill some void in yourself or to satisfy some urge, but it is to be happy. So that was like the only metric. And then it was building myself up from there. So I reached kind of the bottom of myself. And then the walk became much more about the world around me and much less insular. Understanding myself and my influences, my upbringing, then enabled me to see everyone else's in a certain way. I just saw over and over and over again, all these really good, kind, generous, intelligent people around the world doing their best, 
looking for happiness, trying to make a little money, spend time with their family, get on with their day. But all of them are products or just limited to whatever circumstance they're in. What I mean by this is that I just came to realize over time that willpower, want to, and desire really affect so little of an individual's life. And really everything comes down to the geography that they're born into, the politics they're born into, the culture they're born into. And so even though for people, you have to have this sense of self-motivation, this sense of self-direction, I think in reality, it doesn't exist. I, I think it's almost everything is determined by these much greater factors. And so then I became very, I've always been political, but then I became geopolitical and I became, you know, trying to understand the histories of these interlocking cultures and these interlocking countries and these laws that just affect so much of someone's life and how good politics and good lawmaking and good infrastructure can make people happier, whether they realize it or not, they just can. These top-down decisions have a huge impact on people. That made me evolve in a certain way. And then by the time I returned home, while all this is going on, I'm also just trying to get through the walk, looking forward to the end of it and the end of loneliness in a certain way. I thought at some point on the walk, whether I admitted it to myself or not at the beginning, that I would reach some sort of transcendence, that I would find, I would become something beyond human. But when I started walking the US again, or even maybe in Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan, I sort of realized or acknowledged or accepted that I'm just human like everyone else and there's no transcendence. Like that's kind of the point is that there is no escape. You are what you are and that you're human just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Then it's just coming to terms with that and, you know, living a life like everyone else just lives one life. Yeah. I'm just thinking like, what was it about Kyrgyzstan that <laughs> seems the un- unlikely place to like, you know, find your Dharma? <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what your experience taught you about happiness. I think like happiness actually is in, in a certain way, it's, it's very simple. You know, it's security, having a, having a community and having some small sense of purpose kind of that gets you through the day. And I think a lot of other things get conflated as happiness, but they're really just pleasure. You know, mm-hmm. like going to the movies, you know, whatever, that's nice. Or, you know, going to the bar or you know, th- those are nice things and, and they can bring you pleasure. But really, it's 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 more about the community and living in a, in, in a space that promotes community and having community around you. I think that's really what at our dumb human psychology core it comes down to kind of just having your tribe and and in a lot of ways that gives you purpose and it gives you self-definition. You were robbed in Panama, if I read correctly. That sounded like that was was that your only really bad experience as far as like Yeah, I, I ran into a guy in Georgia in the US. That was a weird experience, just a very creepy guy that later I would have just dismissed, but in my early days I was maybe too polite and kind of didn't trust my gut enough. Uh, But yeah, Panama held up at knife point in Turkey, actually in in the mountains, kind of just North of Syria, I was held up at gunpoint, but it ended up being, it it was like this three hour ordeal and we're up in the mountains. So didn't have any service or anything. 
And that was probably the most terrified I ever was. But strangely, I ended up being okay because they were plainclothes military and they thought I was a, a, a Kurdish terrorist. <laughs> and so it was kind of, in a way, just like this big misunderstanding. Yeah. And so yeah. I heard, in reality, I was probably never in, in in any real threat. And it never, it didn't leave any lasting impression on me where I just, I, they, I, I like camped later that night. I slept great. I, and then I went on my way like it was nothing. Yeah. Uh, but in the moment, it was, it was scary. Yeah. Did you ever have any, you know, experiences as being an American? Because you were going through some areas that, you know, there's a lot of tension between some of these areas and their conflicts and the United States and our role in those conflicts. And I'm curious how you negotiated with that and this whole, you know, American identity in some places that are welcoming and some places that would be maybe less welcoming. I think people in general do a pretty good job of separating private citizens from their government because in a lot of places you go, the governments are not great. Yeah, And so I think they acknowledge that just because you got a corrupt government or a warmongering government or an overreaching government, whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily reflect on the person. So I, I really didn't have uh, any issue. I found most people uh, very uh, generous. And if they were like interested, it was out of curiosity. And in some countries, I'd meet a lot of people who just wanted to figure out how to get to America. I'd say that was more common. Uh huh. Interesting. Um, and it, I'm curious on this. You, there were, I assume like you couldn't go through Syria because of the civil war that's going on. Were there other areas that you were anticipating going through that you ended up having to circumvent or yeah? Around there's a couple. Of things. Initially, I was planning on doing uh, on North Africa. Now I would have liked to have done more of Africa, but Africa is massive. You know, it would, it would probably take me three years with all the visas and you know, a lot of visas for those countries. Yeah. Legitimately, it's just like this whole Gordian knot of problems to solve Africa. So I was like, I'll just do North Africa. But initially, I was planning on doing Libya and Egypt. Uh, but Libya at the time was in a really bad state and, you know, basically a, a multiple civil wars, you know, happening along the coast. So I was like, yeah, I'll just jump up from Tunisia back to Europe rather than getting over to Egypt. And then I also planned on walking Kazakhstan, Mongolia, but I wasn't able to do that because of COVID. COVID, uh, when I reached them, they were closed, the borders were closed. And the same with Australia. Initially, I planned on walking Australia and that was closed because of COVID. And at that point, it had been six and a half years of walking. Yeah. By the time I reached Kazakhstan, I was like, you know what? Enough's enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the difficult thing about Kazakhstan and Mongolia as well is that you have a very small window to walk them. And so because I knew I was going to miss that window that year, I would have just had to wait basically a year yeah. for that window to reopen and winter to end. So I was, I just said, forget it. I'm just walk across the US and, and uh, you know, accept it. You did this epic mini year adventure with all kinds of you know breaks and things so you weren't like by yourself for this long but you had all this time with this purpose of doing this trip you made it through you've done it now you're it's you finished a year about a year ago right and yeah, that's exactly what all right so you're, you're back in your mundane life now how do you bring this together how do you reintegrate tell tell me about like what what that's looking like i'm very curious uh, it's been very challenging. Uh, the first, the first three months, I was on cloud nine, 
and it was great. And I was just loving being back with family and friends and I didn't need to do anything to be totally content. And then at a certain point, I remember having this thought while walking Savannah, you know, just on, you know, just general walk that it keeps going. That was my thought. I was like, as in life, life keeps going. And the world walk had just driven me. It was, it was so singularly my purpose for such a long time that then suddenly without it, I was just amazed that life kept going without purpose. Uh-huh. And I just had to keep existing in it and I had to make a living. Then it was very challenging. And I moved out to Seattle to be with uh, this girl, this woman that I met along the way in Washington uh, state. We started living together in Seattle. I had a couple of friends there. People were working their jobs. I'm writing, you know, doing uh, some keynote talks, working on my memoir. I didn't have the habit of sitting down for a long stretch of time, so I was restless. Yeah, and then I just felt very directionless, and it was it was really challenging for a while. Uh, Savannah and I would walk like four hours a day in Seattle just because I had <laughs> I know what to do with myself. Yeah. It's gotten easier. It's definitely just been an adjustment. I'm more content now uh, than I was six months ago. Mm-hmm. I would say I would say what's challenging is that you just have to accept the place that you're in in a certain way. Whereas before, I didn't feel so emotionally invested in places. I could go experience them, their benefits and their flaws kind of equally and just out of curiosity, but now I'm in places and I'm judgmental of them in, in a certain way. And I go, oh, well, Zadar in Croatia does a piazza much, much better than this. This infrastructure, <laughs> this infrastructure is horrible. Like, well, that's actually true of America. The, the walking and biking infrastructure is trash. Like, it becomes kind of, it's like kind of painful in a certain way to have traveled so much and then just be in one place and be like this is not how you could do better <laughs> this could be better kind of have your have your third eye opened in a certain way yeah but it's also it's also a great lesson learning to appreciate just the good and sort of separate out the things that you can improve and or the things that you want to be improved it's been good it's it's just uh it's just an adjustment yeah yeah well it it sounds like you're you're still kind of in the middle of your re- reintegration here in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Be, yeah. be curious to hear how, how that part works out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <I'll say. laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. It was great to meet you and great to just hear. I had all these questions, you know, and just to be able to satisfy my own curiosity about like this amazing adventure you had. So really appreciate yeah, your openness. Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for thank you for the good questions, good conversations. If you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.